Interesting. According to my data, you might be a lefty. Welcome back to Six Degrees of Cats, a podcast about how cats have shaped our past, present, and future. Hello, hello, wonderful people. It's me, Amanda B., a.k.a. Captain Kitty. As you know, here on Six Degrees of Cats, we like to keep it fresh. If you didn't, now you know. And I welcome you back to this special two-part series exploring the many degrees of connection among cats and... Science. Since that last episode, I can't tell you how many hypotheses about the world and cats that I've come up with. Thousands. They haunt me. They keep me up at night. It's, uh... It's actually becoming a bit of a problem. Is this how mad scientists get their start? Behind every good scientist, mad, glad, sad, or uh, rad, is a research team, which has often included a cat or three. And in the first part of the series, we clarified a few things about that, such as... How scientists channel that curiosity to investigate some of their pressing questions. And you know what they say about curiosity in cats, which isn't actually true. We also identified cats as highly qualified principal investigators themselves. Mine have been teaching themselves to extract food from a cat maze, for example. And as you heard earlier, looks like Binky is a lefty. Worth investigation. We also heard about how these furry little magical critters have helped us mitigate angular momentum with their writing reflex, which apparently helps gymnasts. I think this makes the case for the U.S. gymnastics team to rebrand with tiger stripes in their costume. What do you think? No? In this episode, part two of our series on cats and science, we're going to lean into the mad science part of this topic, the whimsical, the wondrous, and the weird, starring, you guessed it, cats, kind of like this podcast. And just as with part one, don't you worry, I'm not going anywhere near studies or research that has involved vivisection or surgical experimentation on animals. Buckle up. In part one, we explored science that one might say has more immediate relevance and impact on our human daily lives. Of course, cats have factored heavily into scientific discovery in those domains. There is also, however, the other domain in science which is one of the more fascinating avenues, the one that stretches the old imagination a bit and definitely taps into that curiosity. I'm talking about the realm of the theoretical, the micro or macroscopic stuff that our five senses, or six depending on what you believe, cannot synthesize holistically into our perception of reality. It's just too vast, too complex, too abstract. Like mental math. In that theoretical realm, there also lives cats. Well, sort of. (laughs) I'm talking about Schrodinger's cat. Ring a bell? First off, Schrodinger, Ernst Schrodinger, was not a very nice guy. See my show notes for that context. 
who happened to do a lot of important and influential work in the field of physics in the early 20th century. He didn't actually have a cat, but he's associated with this concept of a cat in a box that is both alive and dead at the same time. And physics. That's all I got. In all seriousness, I'm glad to have a much more qualified person to explain more about this concept. That would be returning expert Dr. Karim El-Sayed, who oversees microscopy at Austria's Vienna Biocenter Core facilities. On a side note, Schrödinger actually worked in the building right around the corner from here. All the universities are sort of concentrated in this small area. Must be in the water. Anyway, we're going to talk about quantum mechanics, which is... Quantum mechanics is well, the study of the quantum of light. Okay, a quantum of light. So far, so good. What you have in quantum mechanics, you have something called a wave function. And this is basically an equation. It can be anything. It's a description of the state of a system. It contains ideally all the properties of the system. And it does not contain any observables until it actually collapses. And what that means is that wave function can describe multiple system states, but then by operating on it, if you will, so this could be either looking at it, feeling it, feeling the object, you cause it to collapse into a single state. Before it does this, the system is not in a certain state, uh, in a defined state. So before the collapse, which is caused by some sort of interaction, the wave is not in a defined state. So the waves we see are collapsed. I think kind of got it. There's a quiz at the end of this. What's really standing out to me is, well, remember how in part one we talked about the scientific method and how one aspect of it includes the ability to predict things? Dr. Elsayad and I had a good chuckle together as fellow scientists over here. Yeah, that's actually interesting because that's the general problem with quantum mechanics. You're kind of designing a predictive theory that by nature says everything is unpredictable. But you're not really saying it's unpredictable. You're saying that the observable will be unpredictable. You still define a very sort of clear wave function. Basically, the nature of quantum mechanics is that you don't really have this full deterministic picture. So you're still making laws and predictions, but this time about how unpredictable it is, or limits to that. And that is probably where science ends and philosophy begins. Back to cats, and Schrodinger, and the box. Can't forget that. The idea of Schrodinger's cat is that, he said, like, imagine you have a cat in a box, and you also have a radioactive source in that box. And the way radioactivity works is it emits, imagine it emits gamma rays, it will emit them spontaneously, which means it essentially emits them at random. So it could emit it now, but it could also emit it later. It has a certain half-life and so forth. But you can never tell exactly when the radiation or the given photon is emitted. But you know that this radiation source is strong enough to actually kill the cat when it does emit radiation. So the question is now, you have this box, yeah? You have this cat in it, the cat's alive. You have this radiation source in there. And it just randomly emits. You don't know exactly when it emits. And you're not allowed to look in the box. The box is completely sealed from you. You can't hear from anything from the box. You have no physical interaction of knowing what's actually going inside the box. 
the question is at any point in time would you know if the cat is dead or alive because if it did emit this radiation source then the cat would have died if it didn't emit then the cat would still be alive but you have no way of knowing if it emitted or not because it's a spontaneous process that happens at random so his arguments said that until you actually observe the cat the cat is both dead and alive or it's neither dead or neither alive in other words the wave function has not yet collapsed it is not in a physical state yet where you can say that it's dead or alive this is the schrodinger cat i'd heard of schrodinger's cat described in the context of more existential stuff you know questioning if anything about our reality can truly be assumed but this has been taken a little bit out of context and misinterpreted in some ways it's not really a dilemma it was just a simple way of explaining i think what the collapse of a wave function is and that before it actually collapses you're not in a fixed state and that's it i mean i, th- I don't think there's anything extremely complex about it I think he just created it back in the 30s as a way to explain to students in a very simple way the collapse of quantum states. Okay, got it. It's all about gamma rays. So, why a cat, Ernst? Why? Why not a clown or an elf or a baby? So using a baby or a human would just seem cool, yeah? I mean, that would just seem like why are you even thinking about that, you know? It wouldn't be very good for physics because, you know, it sounds like, you know, we actually want to do these experiments now. And then, yeah, so I think that's sort of an image thing. Yeah, he has a point. That would not have been good optics. Dr. El-Sayad was saying. I really don't know why he chose a cat. I think he he wanted it to be small. He needed it to fit in a box probably, yeah, cuz if it was a container it's a bit harder to imagine, no, like a cow. And a small dose of radiation would have to kill it. Although I did hear that cats can withstand more radiation than a lot of animals. So that makes it a weird choice again. Maybe like the rest of us, Schrodinger noticed that cats and boxes are a thing. Since it sounds like the actual object in the box is relatively trivial, I say it's a clown. Schrodinger's clown. <laughs> Quantum physics. Really interesting stuff and very applicable to important work in understanding things at a very theoretical level. How about real cats and theoretical physics? Well, Get this. Cats are more liquid than we realized. Oh yes, that's right. We're going to talk more about this after the break. Before the break, we talked about cats, boxes, and lasers. Well, gamma rays, as in Schrodinger's cat. I'm choosing to believe that the cat is alive in there and that any cat in any box is there by choice. Moving along, let's think about living cats in vessels other than boxes. 
Have you ever noticed how cats truly can squeeze themselves into small spaces? I'm talking about glasses, vases, and other seemingly improbable places that only a liquid belongs. How the heck do they do that? Well, let's go back to physics. I think we need to get a handle on what exactly we're talking about with liquid versus solid states. Thankfully, we still have Dr. El Sayad on the line. So really, we want to understand what states the body can be in from a material perspective, because it obviously exists in lots of different phases. So some of you is liquid, some of you is solid, but most of you is something weirdly in between. And it's really that weirdly in between thing that actually makes you alive. If you wouldn't be able to transition microscopically between solid and liquid, well, you know, you'd just be a wax figure, basically. So it's really trying to understand this dynamic structure is what we call it, so transient structure, which actually sort of defines life. Cool. Humans and cats are a transient structure. Amusingly, or ingeniously, someone took that a step further. That would be 2017 Ig Nobel Award winner Marc-Antoine Fardin, a researcher of rheology at l'Université Paris Diderot. Dr. El-Sayed helped me understand this study. He actually read the paper. I think that he just took pictures of the internet of cats in different vessels. And basically the cats, they take the form of the vessel, which made him conclude that to some extent they're liquid because liquids are defined as uh, materials which take the form of the container. And I think he even worked out the mechanical relaxation time of cats and he concluded that they're to some extent liquid. Well, everything is liquid to some extent, but they're surprisingly liquid. I remember even reading this paper at one point. I mean, he was really treating it as a pure physical system and working out all these parameters that we use to actually define material properties. And he worked out he has just a very slow, viscous relaxation time. I think he even projected to other felines, if I remember correctly. Since we're talking about material properties, let's check in with our materials scientist, Dr. Titi Lyoshodia, who we heard from in part one. They're talking about the rheology. So rheology is how things flow, the flow of a liquid or a solid. Like even the glass in our windows, if you were to leave it for, you know, a thousand years, it would eventually start to sag because glass is liquid. I can see by some stretch of the imagination because, you know, I've picked up a cat or two and they are pretty <laughs> floppy uh, when they let you pick them up. Um, how we can get to that conclusion, because, it I mean, they're very slinky and, you know, sometimes they can fit through things that you feel like it's impossible for them to get through. How do they do that? Obviously, this is of great personal interest to myself and hopefully you. But about this paper and this author's investigation, does it actually have practical application? He semi-convincingly argued that it was not a useless endeavor. And it's a long paper. It's not sort of just a, a page. I tried to check out the paper myself, and I got a little lost in the details. I think there's something about a Deborah number. That would be a great band Turns name. Turns out that's named after a prophetess. I got curious about that. I like stuff like this where it's you kind of think outside of the box a little bit. 
It definitely stokes curiosity, an end unto itself. We've learned about the scientific method and appreciated how observing cats has led to discoveries about various fundamental laws in physics. We've also somehow wandered into quantum mechanics and the field of rheology, which until this episode I'd never heard of. Now, let's bring it all home and hear about how cats have been an actual investigative variable in a humane experiment that made the headlines. And you'll come to find has practical, everyday application to our lives. Before we get into our final investigation, a slight content warning ahead. You'll hear the word butthole quite frequently because it will come up. I just couldn't find a way around it. Even if you use more clinical words, we're talking about that region of the body, which is a little impolite to talk about in conversation, so I get it. And I won't be offended if you skip ahead about 10 minutes, but you'll be missing out on some very serious science. Very serious. Anywho, I'm excited to introduce our fourth scientist of this two-part science series, whose work in uh, public health has revolutionized discourse in the world of domestic relations among feline and humankind. His abstract poster, which was presented in a small virtual scientific conference in 2021, made such a splash that news outlets across the world, such as Mental Floss, Nerdist, and even late-night television covered it. The unique, pressing scientific question posed by the poster's very descriptive title was... Does your cat's butthole really touch all the surfaces in your home? I'll let the principal investigator introduce himself. I'm Caden, and I do like games here and there, and mostly I'm a cat person because we have this cat, uh, Taco, who helped with our project. He's a interesting cat for the house, really. At the time of this interview, Caden was in sixth grade. I had the honor of interviewing Caden and his supervisor, who also happens to be his mom, Carrie. I'm a certified humane educator, but then I got a, a doctorate in animal behavior. The technical name is ethology, but if I say ethology, a lot of people don't know what that is. So I just say animal behavior and then they know. And my concentration was obviously in cats. <laughs> I was the queen of solving litter box problems. That was my specialty. Science runs in the family, clearly. And given Carrie's specialty, Caden was well-primed for this investigation relevant to the anatomy involved in Lairbox problems. You may be wondering, how did this all get started? This kind of started as a joke, I guess. There's a little meme and there's like four boxes and there's a cat and, and each one of the boxes has like a picture of your home. And it says one thing you have to come to terms with being a cat owner is knowing that your cat's butthole has touched every surface in your home. We were kind of like, eh, that's probably true. <laughs> and then nothing was really said for a while. We just have our two kitties now, Maya and Taco. And my husband is kind of funny about, you know, cats being on furniture. So the more we started thinking about it, 
we really started to genuinely wonder, do they really touch everything? And then the science fair just kind of got brought up and we were like, let's do it. Let's find out. So how does one go about uh, documenting where cats' booties have made physical contact with a surface? Let's just say very creative use of cosmetics. Pucker up. I was the one who came up with the lipstick part. I was like, I think that's safe enough. And I think we can get results with that. So we'll give it a try. (laughs) And Caden took it from there. (laughs) I think the biggest obstacle was trying to figure out what we could put that would not be toxic, not, you know, be distressing to the cats to actually determine this. And here's how they set up the lab. Taco got red lipstick. Maya got pink lipstick. So we would know who left what spots because we were expecting a lot of spots. We laid a, a white flat sheet across the bed and we put some pieces of white paper on like the nightstand and then on the floor. The lipstick came from Dollar Tree because we wanted something that was cheap and would smear easily. And so Caden called them in, gave them treats. I just real quick lifted the tail, applied lipstick real fast, and they, you know, walked off because obviously they felt something and was like, what is that? (laughs) And how did they run that experiment again? We let them just walk around the room. We picked them up, put them on the bed, and then Caden had the treats and he was telling them to sit or stand up or lay down. And we were just watching as they would sit. And then when they would bring their bottom back up, was there any marks or anything? Okay, folks, the time has come. Do cats' buttholes touch every surface of your home? That's a possibility that your cat's butt does not truly touch almost everything. Okay, slightly reassuring. Any key variables of which to be aware? Hair has everything to do with it. The denser the hair, the longer the hair, that seems to be your safest bet. The shorter hair cats might touch a few things. We had quite a few people who chimed in on multiple sites and pages and shares. People who had hairless cats promised me for sure that their cats actually leave little pucker marks on like coffee tables and end tables. They were like, oh yes, buttholes are definitely touching in our house. We have hard, solid evidence of it. (laughs) Carrie helped us understand some of the remaining limitations on the findings. We did see a slight smear on the flat sheet, and that was on Taco. He had the shorter hair. To be quite honest, there's a video on my original Facebook post, and you can see in the video of Taco when he gets up off the nightstand where the lipstick goes on the hair. So that could have been a fault of ours. We'll definitely have to redo it at some point and update our findings. Thus continues the cycle of science. The work continues, as Dr. Shodia explained. It's an endless loop, the scientific method, because once you have conclusions, you can then again make another observation 
and ask another question and then research more and then come up with another hypothesis and then test that and then analyze that data and then come up with another conclusion. Since publication, there have already been reports of positive public health impact affirmed by corresponding author Carrie. This really brought a lot of peace to a lot of homes. Sometimes there's one partner that is kind of concerned about bacteria, you know, different things that the cat might be carrying and being on their pillow and things like that. So I told him, this is really good stuff. Be very proud of what you did. I concur. I see bright things for Caden's scientific career should he continue along that specific path. And, well, I guess it's for the best that Binky and Snuggles sleep in other rooms than me, even though that makes me very sad. Our principal investigator leaves us with these parting words. I would probably have people realize that you shouldn't just look at a cat and go like, oh yeah, I'm just going to look at this cat. Oh, I'm just going to assume his butt touches everything. I would like people to actually like think about it. All the hair that's in the way and how the cat actually sits and all that. As Carrie and Caden found... You can rest assured that, unless you have a hairless cat, pending further research, the entirety of your home is not, in fact, in need of a visit from the health department. Or if it is, it's more likely because of your gas stove, not your cat. Check your carbon monoxide alarms, folks. And use enzyme cleaners, not bleach, for biostains. Alrighty. All of the questions raised in these past two episodes are effectively to be continued. Going back to Dr. Shodia here. Science never stops. There is no scientific question that you could put a period at the end of the sentence and say, that's it, we're done. Everything is finished here. How can we possibly say this is all there is when so much has yet to be uncovered and explored? How can we say we know all we need to know about cats? Hence this podcast, in which, I guess you could say, I'm something of a scientist myself. Or I just play one on TV. Once someone picks this up and hires me to go on a world tour about cats. From here on out, that's Dr. Captain Kitty. I think that's how that works. I've been happy to have you along as we've traveled several degrees across various subjects in science here. Thus concludes our two-part series on science. My conclusion? Curiosity did not kill the cat. Possibly gamma rays did. But given that cats are possibly mostly liquid and are exceptionally agile, perhaps we can conclude that Schrodinger's cat found a corner to slide out of the box entirely and land on its two feet. Ah, cats in science. Boy, they've certainly left their paw, or pucker-shaped imprints, all over the history of science. And that's not all they've walked or sat on while we've tried to work. What's that about 15th century manuscripts with cat pee and paw prints all over them? Was it personal? Was it a critique of a terrible score? Tune in next time to find out. I want to thank my wonderful experts. Karina Zayed. Titi Shodia. And Kin. And his mom, Carrie. While the opinions are my own, the research and the work is theirs. 
If you'd like to learn more about them, please check out our show notes, which also include the references and research that went into this episode. If you loved it, please leave us a five-star rating and a review and share it with someone who needs more curiosity in their life. Thanks again, folks. I appreciate you. We're all in this together. My hypothesis? Everything is connected. Six Degrees of Cats is produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Captain Kitty, a.k.a. Amanda B. Please subscribe to our mailing list by visiting tinyurl.com slash 6degreesofcats or find us on all those social media platforms. And for my paid subscribers, you'll have access to the extra audio with more deep dives by our experts. This and all episodes are dedicated to the misunderstood, the marginalized, the resilient, and the weird. And, of course, all the cats we've loved and lost. The next time you see your cat dangling from your curtain, well, maybe they are absolutely liquid. (laughs) This cat is liquid. Oh, yeah, we said there was a quiz at the end of this episode. Never mind. We wouldn't do that to you.